0: Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together this evening for this online session, uh, for this time of study in your word, as we continue our study in the subject of soteriology and understanding this most wonderful doctrine. Father, we just pray this evening as we take this time to consider your word that we will be sensitive to the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand the biblical text. We pray in all this that we will be challenged by these things. Father, we pray that tonight's session will be honoring to you edifying to us, we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to switch over to my uh, share screen here, and that way we can get going on this. Now, over the last few weeks, we have uh, moved into uh, discussing the doctrine of the Trinity, and uh, We talked about each of the members of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three being co-equal, co-infinite, co-eternal, worthy of all praise and honor and worship. And uh, We spent some time uh, looking at the attributes of God, those uh, qualities or characteristics that are intrinsic to his nature and shared equally by all three members in the Godhead. Last, uh, well, here a few weeks ago, we talked about the role of God the Father with regard to our salvation, and we discussed uh, briefly that uh, our salvation was planned in eternity past, and this by God the Father. The Scripture makes it clear that He was the one who planned uh, our salvation. He then commissioned the Son, and the Son agreed to that, and the Son came into the world. He was sent by the Father and uh, the Father sent and Christ went. Uh, he was uh, compliant. And uh, last time we talked about God the Son. We looked at his deity. We looked at those clear passages that uh, state uh, that he is fully God. Then we spent a little brief time talking about uh, his, uh, the doctrine of the hypostatic union And the hypostatic union refers to the personal combining together of two natures forever into one person. That Jesus Christ is simultaneously God and man. He is theanthropic, uh, full deity combined together with perfect humanity. And we talked about how at a point in time, nearly 2,000 years ago, Uh, The eternal Son of God came into this world and took upon himself humanity, and this at the time of the virgin conception. Uh, He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Luke chapter 1 makes this very clear. We talked about Mary having the role of being um, Christotokos. She's the bearer of the humanity of Christ. and, uh, And that when Christ came into the world, Uh, He was true humanity minus a sin nature, and he lived an absolutely righteous life. He committed no sin, and last time we left off, we talked about him going to the cross and dying in our place. Now, when God the Son came into the world and took upon himself humanity, uh, we could call that a condescension of love, a condescension of love, because he came down to us and he took upon himself humanity. He added humanity to himself. And at that moment, um, when he took himself upon himself humanity, he was then on a mission. And that mission was to take him to the cross. Now, Christ throughout his life is described as a man of sorrows. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, and we'll spend a little bit of time this evening... Looking at Isaiah chapter 53, I've looked at it before, but that's all right. We'll hit it again. Uh, and I wrote—I uh, have a whole chapter on the subject of the suffering servant on a book in a book I wrote about 10 years ago called "Suffering: A Biblical Consideration." And uh, in that book, I had a whole chapter devoted to that, uh, looking at Isaiah chapter 53. And uh, I'll see if I can pull that out and maybe include that in my email tonight when I send it out, and that way you'll at least have a fuller reading of that if you want that. Now let's go ahead and jump into this section here, and we will look at the suffering servant. We will look at what Jesus had to endure uh, in his humanity, because remember, he comes into a fallen world. He comes into a fallen world with fallen mankind, and he comes on a mission, and that is to save that which was lost, to seek and to save the lost. And so he comes into a fallen world that naturally puts him at odds. Uh, Because remember that three times in the Gospel of John, Satan is described as the ruler of this world. This is a temporary arrangement, one that is permitted by God according to his sovereignty. Uh, But it is nonetheless the state of affairs of the world in which we live. So, three times, Satan is referred to as the God of this world. Uh, 2 Corinthians four four describes him as the God of this age. Ephesians two two calls him the Prince of the Power of the Air. We know that according to Isaiah fourteen that he is described as one who has weakened the nations. Weakened the nations. That's how powerful he is. Revelation twelve nine tells us that he deceives the whole world. That the scope of his influence is global. And so the vast majority of humanity will not follow Christ. That is, that is the truth of it. And when we think about the church in this world, uh, in the end, during our time on this earth, we do not win. Uh, the church does not win. We do not evangelize the world. We do not lead the majority to Christ. Not everybody gets saved. Uh, the world will eventually come to a place of righteousness, but that is when Christ returns at his second coming. In the meantime, we are going to be the minority, and that's fine. That's fine. Matthew seven thirteen and 14 makes it very clear that broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many are they who find it. And Jesus said, narrow is the path that leads to life, and few are they who find it. Now, Christ is the way. He is the path. In fact, he's the only way. He said that in John 14, 6, he said, no man comes to the Father, but... By me, I, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. So, I don't know how you would quantify Matthew 7, 13, and 14, uh, but nonetheless, uh, believers will be in the minority. And that's because the majority of humanity will not turn to Christ. Remember John 3, 19, it says that uh, the light came into the world, that's Jesus Christ, but men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And then you think of in John twelve thirty seven, which says that though he performed so many signs among them, yet they were not believing. And that, is the, that was the state of affairs then, and that is the state of affairs now. And so naturally, coming into a fallen world, one is going to be exposed to pressures in this world. And Christ came into this world, and he suffered while he was in this world. And of course there was no greater suffering that Christ knew than when he went to the cross and died in our place. And so let's talk a little bit about the suffering servant. Let's talk about uh, Jesus Christ in hypostatic union. So it is in the understanding of the suffering and death of Christ that the sinner appreciates God's great love and the price that was paid for our salvation. Christ suffered in our place, bearing the penalty that rightfully belongs to us. Uh, scripture tells us in 1 Peter three eighteen that Christ also died for sins once for all. His death was a one-and-done event. He died for sins once, and he died for all. He died for all humanity. That's called unlimited atonement. Christ's death was... Is sufficient uh, for all, but it is effective only to those who believe. Only those who turn to Christ as Savior will benefit from his uh, work on the cross. So Peter tells us that Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. And I'll bring up here the use of the Greek preposition pair, which I mentioned before, and we'll look at it again. Uh, but just to kind of drive the point a little further, this Greek preposition here, it's one of two, the other is the Greek preposition anti, uh, it's spelled A-N-T-I, uh, we bring it into the English as anti, uh, but here it's pronounced from the Greek, anti, uh, and both who pair and anti in a number of passages have the idea of substitution. So when we think that Christ died for sins once for all, the just, as a substitute, for the unjust and why what was his death intended to accomplish so that he might bring us to God so that he might bring us to God so it was the point of Christ dying upon the cross uh, to provide a way for us to be reconciled to God uh, the Father because we cannot do that by ourselves good works have no saving value in God's sight Uh, Now, good works should follow salvation, and they are certainly the basis for future rewards. Uh, But they have no salvific value. Uh, That's only through the death of Christ. Now, perhaps no section of Scripture in the Old Testament bears greater testimony to this truth than Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through Isaiah uh, 53, 12, in which the prophet reveals the Messiah... As the suffering servant. It's a very interesting passage, very interesting. And, uh, and I'll just read through it quickly because this passage, this Isaiah 53, is referenced about eight times in the New Testament. And the New Testament writers clearly uh, saw this passage as pertaining or as, as speaking about Jesus. And so Isaiah here writes, and this was about 750 years before uh, the birth of Christ. So Isaiah wrote, He says, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up. Now this speaks of Christ in his humanity. This is uh, remember when we talked about the hypostatic union, that there are some passages that speak to his divine nature, to his deity and some passages that speak to his humanity. Remember in Isaiah 7, uh, 14, when it talks about how the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which Matthew so kindly tells us means God with us, uh, reference to uh, his deity coming into the world and taking upon himself humanity. But here it's a reference to his humanity, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. And that just means that there was nothing about his physical presence or his features uh, that we might look at and uh, see as being regal in nature. Uh, so it says that he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He would not stand out in a crowd. He would look like a uh, a normal, average person. Although I do think he had uh, a great physique, uh, and this because he was a carpenter and because he uh, walked everywhere. I'm sure he, had, uh, uh, I'm sure he was in great health. And then the fact that he endured such beatings uh, going to the cross... Uh, would also indicate that he was very strong physically, uh, very, very good health, what he was able to endure bodily. Uh, And these are extrapolations that one looks at from various passages of Scripture and just understanding the time and the culture within which he lived. Verse 3 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, ...and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Now we have this idea here, and you find this language of substitution and judgment. You find both here. In verse 4 it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God... And afflicted. And so uh, Christ, while he was on the cross, took our sins upon himself. And remember that throughout the beatings, throughout the trials, that he did not uh, cry out. Uh, In fact, the passage in here tells us that like a lamb that is silent before his shearers, so will the Son of Man be. And so when he went through his trials, he did not seek to defend himself, although he did uh, clarify uh, a point with Pilate uh, in John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. But really, he didn't answer uh, his judges, because he knew that the whole trial was a big farce. He knew that ultimately it was going to put him upon the cross. He knew that. But he went through the mockings, the beatings, the crown of thorns, Uh, the beating in his face, the scourging, and uh, and then afterwards was made to carry his cross to Golgotha, the hill of the skull, where he was crucified and where he was upon the cross. And we know that from noon until 3 p.m., when the sky grew dark, that at that time, we understand, that all of our sins, the sins of all humanity, past, present, and future, at the time of the cross, were taken and were placed upon Christ. And remember that when Christ was upon the cross, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so it was one of those situations where when he hung upon the cross, he was made to bear our sin. And Peter tells us that in his own body he bore our sins. That's in his humanity. And so when he was upon the cross, he died and bore the punishment that rightfully belonged to us. And so he was smitten of God and afflicted, verse 5 tells us, but he was pierced through, notice, for our transgressions, for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. And that is a spiritual healing. It speaks of the healing of our relationship with the Father. But what is the state of mankind? Well, it's not complimentary. It's not a a very good picture, let me tell you. Uh, For all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. And each of us has turned to his own way. But notice, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed and He was afflicted; yet He did not open His mouth, like a lamb that is silent to slaughter, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before His shearers. So He did not open His mouth. In other words, He did not seek to defend Himself, uh, to get out of it. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, notice, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with a wicked man, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Remember, he was impeccable. Uh, He committed no sin. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And remember, we talked about that, how the Father sent and Christ went. And uh, the Father was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring... And will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, you see, there's an outcome to this. There's a a benefit to his suffering. There's, There's a good result. As the result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. So he goes to the cross willingly. And what's fascinating is you have a passage, I think it's in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, if memory serves me correct. I think it's in Hebrews 12, 2, and it says, Because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And so when Christ was upon the cross, he had you and me in mind. And he knew that his death would result in our salvation. And so he laid down his life, the just for the unjust, that we might be brought to God. And so I believe that, uh, that uh, the end result of his death, the value of his death, and the fact that he knew that it would justify the many uh, as he would bear our iniquities, I think this gave him satisfaction on the cross. I think, I think he had joy. Uh, verse twelve, therefore, I will allot him uh, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured himself out to death. notice he gave himself up, he poured himself out to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. so again, this passage is very revealing. Uh, with regard to the suffering servant. Now Isaiah 53 is mentioned several times in the New Testament as specifically referring to Christ and you find the New Testament writers referencing this passage like in Matthew 8 17 this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet and I love this because they were thinking biblically they were thinking biblically and they were able to relate this passage in Isaiah to the person of Christ. And notice his citing here from Isaiah where it says, He took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. And you have other passages like John twelve thirty eight. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. A Lord who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Uh, or in, in Acts chapter 8. And this is a fascinating passage because here Philip encounters the Ethiopian eunuch uh, uh, on the backwater of, uh, of uh, Jerusalem. And, uh, and he says here that Philip ran up uh, and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. This would be the Ethiopian eunuch. So Philip comes upon this man who's in this chariot, and he's a well-to-do man, uh, but he's reading from the book of Isaiah Uh, And he's reading Isaiah the prophet and said, and he comes up to him and he says, do you understand what you are reading? And this becomes a point of discussion. And he said to him, the Ethiopian eunuch said to him, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture, which he was reading was this. And notice the, the reference to Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers, before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who will relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth. Now, he's reading this passage from Isaiah 53, but notice verse 34. It says, it says the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else, because he doesn't know. And I love verse 35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached what? Jesus to him. Beginning from this scripture, Isaiah 53, Philip, talking to the Ethiopian eunuch on this dirt road, uh, uh, while in his chariot, preached Jesus to him, because the Isaiah 53 passage so clearly references Uh, points to Jesus as the Messiah. And so you have these references in the New Testament that clearly cite the Isaiah 53 passage. So there's no mistake in the minds of the New Testament writers that the passage points to Jesus. Now, according to John Stott, and John Stott wrote a very interesting book called The Cross of Christ, uh, and it's, it's a it's a pretty good read. Now, there's some things I disagree with Stott on, but this is a good book of his. It's one of his that I, I think is worth reading. Uh, but he says, and here I'm quoting from him, he says the New Testament writers quote eight specific verses as having been fulfilled in Jesus. Eight verses out of the chapters 12 are all quite specifically uh, referred to Jesus, end quote, And then, citing from Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, because he has a a new commentary on Isaiah. And by the way, if you get a chance to pick up any of the commentaries or any of the other books by Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, uh, worth your money, let me tell you. I've got a bunch of his uh, commentaries on my shelf behind me. He just finished recently, I think, a commentary on Daniel, and he's about to get one published on Jeremiah, and I think Lamentations. And once it hits the press, I'm going to see if I can scrape a few nickels and dimes together and buy that. Uh, because his books are really a treasure trove. They're just, I I just I recommend him very highly. Uh, now that I've gotten past my endorsement for Dr. Fruchtenbaum, let me quote him from his commentary on Isaiah. He says, It was Isaiah the prophet who first prophesied the hope that the day would come when the burden will be lifted. In Isaiah 53, God declared that the suffering servant, the Messiah, would be the sacrifice for sin. He goes on, he says, the point of Isaiah 53 is basically this. The animal sacrifices under the Mosaic law were intended to be of temporary duration, a temporary measure only. God's intent intent was for there to be one final blood sacrifice, and that would be the sacrifice of the Messiah, Himself, end quote. And that's absolutely correct. And when one thinks back through the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament, and, and the book of Leviticus is, is very rich in this regard, very helpful, very instructive, one understands that the whole sacrificial system uh, really was didactic. It was instructional. It was intended to point forward to Christ. And when one understands the use of the uh, Hebrew term kafar, which is the word for atonement, uh, and the fact that this animal was given as an atonement for sin. Because when you brought the lamb to the temple, or to the tabernacle, or to the temple, and it was brought uh, because you had committed a crime, you had committed some offense against God, and you brought this uh this animal as a sacrifice and you would come to the priest and you would come and you would lay the lamb upon the altar and you would put your hand on the lamb and the priest would put his hand upon the lamb and you would confess your sin and then the priest would take his knife and he would kill the lamb he would he would uh, cut its throat and the picture was supposed to be very shocking and uh it was the idea that the animal was dying in your place it was designed to teach you that sin is an offense to a righteous and holy god and that god that that a payment must be made because god is righteous and holy and and there was a system that was set up to teach this idea of substitution now the use of the hebrew word kafar means a covering Because the Old Testament sacrifices never took away sins. I mean, read Hebrews 10 sometime. It's very clear. The Old Testament sacrifices never took away sins. It was a temporary covering. It was a temporary arrangement. And it was didactic. It was instructional. It was designed to teach you about the righteousness and the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And how when you came to God, it was this idea of substitution. That an innocent lamb was dying because of your offense. And all of this was educational, and don't you know that when you get to the time of John, the Gospel of John, and John the Baptist, and when John the Baptist sees Jesus, you have this wonderful statement in John 1.29 where he points to Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when everybody turned around, what did they see? Who did they see? They saw Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. And what does he do? He takes away the sin of the world. You see, that's called expiation, uh, which is a theologically rich term. And we'll spend an evening looking at that word. We'll unpack that word in the, in future lessons when we do our word study on a number of issues. But all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament didn't take away sin. It just simply covered sin until Christ came. And when he came and he died, he actually removed that sin. He took it away. And, of course, the benefits of the cross are applied to us who believe And this is why we preach Christ, that people might benefit from the work of Christ upon the cross. But his comment here about the uh, sacrifices under the Mosaic Law were intended to be of temporary duration, a temporary measure only. Uh, Again, it was a temporary arrangement. But then the last clause he has here where he says, God's intent was for there to be one final blood sacrifice, and that would be the sacrifice of the Messiah himself. Very insightful statement. Now in Isaiah 53.10, we observe the Father's judgment on Christ for our sin and Christ's willingness to be judged in our place. Isaiah 53.10 reads, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand You see, it was the Father's will for the Son to go to the cross to die for sinners. But we must also understand that Christ willingly went to his death and bore the Father's wrath in our place. So it is simultaneously true that God sent and Christ went. Uh, Jesus was not forced upon the cross. We must understand this. He was not forced upon the cross. Listen, he could have stopped it at any time. I mean, he could have just simply had a thought or snapped his fingers or winked or anything, and, and the whole thing could have stopped. I mean, he's God. He, and he could have shut it down at any moment. So he was not forced upon the cross, but willingly, in love, surrendered his life and died in our place. John 10, 15, Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep... And John 10, 18, he says, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Ephesians 5, 2, Paul wrote, Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But notice he gave himself up for us. And then in Ephesians 5.25, which says that Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. So this is his laying down his life. And then Galatians 2.20, the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And that's something we have to personalize. See, Paul understood this on a very personal level. It's that Christ loved me, he says, and gave himself up for me. And that's personal because that means that when Christ was upon the cross, when he hung between heaven and earth and all of our sin was being placed upon him, he had you in mind and he had me in mind and he gave himself up for us specifically And we must understand the very personal nature of his love and sacrifice. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us that Christ offered up himself. And in Hebrews 9.14 it says, And he offered himself without blemish to God. So this idea that he willingly went is very important to understand. Now as a result of Jesus bearing the sin of many... Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53.10 that he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord excuse me, will prosper in his hand. And when Isaiah said that he will see his offspring, it meant that Christ's death would bear the fruit of spiritual offspring as people turn to him as Savior and are born again. One thinks of in John 3.3 3, where Jesus answered Nicodemus, uh, we might call, and he visited, remember, Nicodemus came to him at night uh, in private. We might call this Nick at Night uh, episode. Uh, but Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the phrase born again, Ganes uh, Anothen, means literally born from above, because you are born from the source of heaven, from above. 1 Peter 1.3 talks about us being born again, and verse 23 uses the same language, for you have been born again, uh, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. Now, Fruchtenbaum notes concerning this statement, he says, the servant's seed would be those who would benefit from his death by spiritual rebirth. The moment they accept for themselves his substitutionary death for their sins, they are born again spiritually by the Holy Spirit. By this spiritual rebirth, they become the servant's seed. And then we have the phrase which says, And he will prolong his days. Well, this refers to Jesus' bodily resurrection, never to die again. Uh, Because remember that after he died, he was placed in a grave. And on the third day, he was resurrected back to physical life. And one must distinguish between resuscitation and resurrection. Resuscitation, Jesus brought many people back to life. They were resuscitated only to die again. Resurrection is different. Resurrection is where you are brought back to life never to die again. And so after Jesus' resurrection, he uh, will never die again. Um, So again here, uh, it refers to his bodily resurrection, never to die again. And the phrase, the good pleasure of the Lord, uh, most likely speaks of heaven's wealth that will be known to those whom Christ will justify and will share in his riches and heavenly estate. Because remember that heaven is our future home. In fact, Philippians 3.20 tells us that we are that our citizenship is in heaven. That our citizenship is in heaven. We have a citizenship in heaven. Uh, now, we have yet to go there, uh, but that's all right. Uh, we nonetheless have a citizenship, and so we have a right to be there once we get there. And Jesus made it clear in John 14, verses 1 through 3. Remember, they're in the upper room. And this was a time where uh, Jesus is leaving them. He's told them he's leaving them, and uh, they're greatly distressed over this news. They don't like the idea of Jesus leaving them. Uh, And so he tells them, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Now, I spent about 30 minutes here a few weeks ago, and I talked about uh, the use of the Greek verb troubled here, and the form of the verb here is a present passive imperative And so it's a present tense, do not let your heart be troubled. The passive voice means the subject receives the action of the verb. So don't let your heart receive trouble. And it is, listen, it's any kind of news. You can watch news on TV. You can have news about your health or economic news or family news or whatever kind of news Uh, you can hear something and it can produce trouble in your soul. And as I've mentioned before, adversity is inevitable but stress is optional. So as believers, we have uh, we have faith, we have the promises of God, we have divine viewpoint, and that allows us to be able to frame the circumstances of life in such a way that we can uh, bring stability to our soul. Now, sometimes when you're sideswiped by some news or some difficult circumstance in life, you may spiral out for a little bit, maybe even a few days. I don't know. We're all a little different. Uh, and you might go into a spiral, and at some point, you're going to have to collect yourself, and once you do, uh, you can you can begin to frame everything from the divine perspective, and you can then begin to uh, have stability in your soul, uh, but you have to lay hold of those thoughts. You have to. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us that we are bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ that we are bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And that means that we must exercise our minds, we must exercise that discipline of mind and bring our thoughts into captivity. And so he says, believe in God, believe also in me. So that's the solution. That's the solution. The solution is always faith, taking the word of God and applying it to your situation, whatever it happens to be. And the more you know of the word of God, the better equipped you will be to live the life of faith. And Second Corinthians 5 makes it very clear uh, that we shall live by faith. In Hebrews 10, 38, God says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Now, faith is not feelings. Faith, in fact, many times can be contrary to your feelings. Uh, but we're told to live by faith, not feelings. This is a discipline of the mind and a discipline of the will. And uh, and so this becomes part of the Christian life. I started a project about six months ago uh, where I was writing a book on spiritual disciplines. It was my next project, and then I got uh, assigned to this thing that we're doing here now on soteriology. So once I complete this in about a year, I'll get back to that project, uh, unless the rapture occurs between now and then, and then I won't complain because I'll be in heaven. Speaking of heaven, that's where he goes in verse 2. He says, "...in my Father's house are many dwelling places." Uh, Now, this speaks uh, to the residency that we will enjoy in heaven. So he says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also." So this speaks of one of the future blessings and benefits that we have as Christians provided to us via or by means of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, whose atoning work upon the cross secured not only our forgiveness of sins, but eternal life, the gift of righteousness, a spiritual gift, um, a place in heaven. Uh, an eternal destiny and a future, a portfolio of spiritual assets that's absolutely staggering to the imagination when one really gets into studying it. And when you begin to think this way and you really begin to understand the Word of God and you really begin to plug it in, and apply it to your life, it will produce in you a personal sense of destiny that is tied to the infinite personal creator God and his plan for the human race. And, uh, and, of course, being on God's side, we are always on the right side of, of human history. Being on God's side, we are always on the right side of human history, because in the end, uh, God wins. And uh, Christ will return, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, second coming. He will put down all rebellion. Uh, he came first as the Lamb of God. He returns as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so when he returns, and we'll look at that in the future, we'll talk about his uh, his uh, his return, we'll spend some time on that too, uh, because that also relates to the subject of salvation, because we live in a crummy world, in case you haven't figured it out. Now there's some good times and there's some good people and we try to make the best of it and God blesses us in many ways and I don't deny that. Uh, but by and large there's a lot of evil in the world. and It seems to be ramping up and stupidity seems to be uh, on an all new high, especially here in America. Some of the ridiculous stuff that's going on in our country is just absolutely amazing to think about and I think that there's a lot of spiritual demonic activity that's going on in the background to undermine uh, the very foundation of our country and it's just It has me very, very concerned. Um, But nonetheless, when I think about these things, uh, I have to keep my focus. I have to come back into line and think about God and realize that someday, someday uh, when Christ returns, he's going to shut down all this nonsense and he is going to rule in perfect righteousness. Uh, from Jerusalem, on the throne of David, over the whole world. And this will be a glorious time when Christ upon the earth will be ruling in absolute righteousness. And so we look forward to that. Until then, we are to be lights in a dark world. We are to be communicators of truth. We are to be ambassadors for Christ. We are to operate according to the Royal Family Honor Code and conduct ourselves with dignity and respect and operate by divine viewpoint until Christ returns. So we have our marching orders. We have our mission. We have our marching orders. It's very clearly set forth in the Word of God. And uh, and so we have uh, our objective and so we are to hold the high ground as long as we can uh, until Christ returns. And if we and you know and and and, and if we die uh, before he returns, that's fine. That's fine. I'm not afraid to die. I know that to be absent from the body is to be face to face with the Lord. And as a Christian, uh, you know, I want to try to keep my walk with the Lord uh, as pure and as straight as I possibly can so that when I die, I'll die with my boots on. I will die in service to the Lord. That is how I want to go. And uh, by the grace of God, that will happen. Now, if uh, I would prefer not, to, I would prefer to meet the Lord in the air. The rapture to me is, is quite fine. But if it's His will that I be here until I die, well, that's fine too. He'll give me grace, He'll give me dying grace. I trust Him on that. So getting back to the notes here, now that I've chased some rabbit trails. Though Jesus suffered greatly on the cross, his death was infinitely purposeful. It was infinitely purposeful as it satisfied the Father's demands toward our sin. It satisfied the Father's demands toward our sin. And there is a word, I've talked about it before, but it's the word propitiation. You see it in Romans 3.25, you see it in 1 John 2.2, you see it in 1 John 4.10. A wonderful, wonderful word, propitiation. And it means that God the Father is satisfied because that's what propitiation means. It means he's satisfied with what Christ accomplished on the cross. He's satisfied. So it satisfied the Father's demands toward our sin. And it also justified the many who would trust Christ as Savior. Who would trust Christ as Savior. Isaiah wrote in verse 11, 53, 11, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus Christ in hypostatic union, "...will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities." Now here is a picture of substitutionary atonement. "...as the suffering servant will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities." So you see how this relates to salvation. We're just looking at one aspect of our salvation. I'm trying to give you the pieces of the puzzle. I mean, we've already defined terms. We've talked about the Trinity. We've looked at God the Father, the plan of our salvation from eternity past, His commissioning the Son, the Son coming, His coming into the world. We talked about the deity of Christ. We talked about the hypostatic union. Now we're looking at His suffering. We'll look at His humility uh, shortly. But all of these are pieces to the puzzle. Now I'm still working on my notes on the Holy Spirit, but that's unpacking even more. And we're going to be able to take all this information and it will form a picture, and a big picture and a beautiful picture it will form of uh, of all that went into our salvation. Cuz a lot of times we just focus on on the cross, and that really is the central point. I'm not trying to diminish that, but you have to put that in the much much larger perspective. And that's what I'm trying to do with some of this is to fill in the pieces to give us that bigger uh, picture. Now, here is a picture, again, of substitutionary atonement as the suffering servant, again, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Now, Peter also reveals the doctrine of substitution, again, First Peter three eighteen, when he says that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. Now, it is important to grasp that Christ bore our sin, but please understand, this did not make him a sinner in conduct. See, what we're talking about here is the doctrine of imputation. Now, listen, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this one, but at some point here in the near future, we're going to talk about the doctrine of imputations. This is one of the most Uh, theologically rich doctrines in all of Scripture is the doctrine of imputations. And we're going to look at three major imputations. But one of the imputations that we're going to look at is the imputation of all of humanity's sin to Christ upon the cross. And think about 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, that's God the Father, made Him, that's Christ, made Him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Uh, So here's one half of the equation. The other half of the verse says, so that we, uh, ungodly, helpless sinners, enemies of God, might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now what this means is, is that all of our sin was taken and was placed upon Christ... While he was on the cross, and he was made to bear the punishment for our sin. But please understand that our that the placing of our sin upon him, the imputation of our sin to Christ upon the cross, did not make him a sinner. It just simply meant that he bore our sin. He received our sin and was judged in our place. But that did not make him a sinner. Okay? Now, the flip side of that is true as well. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him the righteousness of God in him. And what that means is is that God, on the flip side, when we come to faith in Christ, God takes the very righteousness of Christ, his own righteousness, by the way, and imputes it to us and gives it to us as a gift. But that doesn't make us righteous in conduct. It simply means that we have received the gift of righteousness, that we have received this gift of righteousness. But again, I go back to my point here. It is important to grasp that Christ bore our sin, but this did not make him a sinner in conduct. On the other hand, we are declared righteous in God's sight because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us at the moment of salvation, but this does not make us righteous in conduct, you see, because we still have a sin nature. Now listen, God wants us to be righteous in conduct and he calls us in Romans 12, 1 and 1 and 2 not to be conformed to this world but to be transformed according to the renewing of our mind uh, because it all starts with how we think. And we have to, once we are saved, once we've trusted in Christ as our Savior, we are then called to spend the rest of our lives expunging a lifetime of human viewpoint, replacing that, removing that, and replacing that with divine viewpoint. And that's a lifelong process, and that's why 1 Peter two two says like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you might grow in respect to your salvation. And 2 Peter 3.18 says grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Second 2 Timothy 2.15 says, "...study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth." Psalm chapter 1, "...blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night." And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, and his leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. But when he says in verse 2, speaking of the godly man, that he meditates haga, he fills the mind. He meditates uh, on, the, on, on the word of God, on the law of the Lord, Torah, instruction, divine viewpoint, direction. And uh, and so he takes this in, and once he learns it, he must then live it, because that's always that two-step process, isn't it? Because you cannot live what you do not know. And learning God's Word necessarily precedes living God's will. And so once we learn it, we must then live it. That's why James 1.22 says, Be ye uh, doers of the Word, and not merely hearers only. So God wants us to pursue righteousness, but we must distinguish Uh, imputed righteousness from experiential righteousness or sanctified life, which is what we are called to. That's phase two of the Christian life. I've talked about this before, but that's all right. Um, So uh, again, we have this imputation of righteousness at the moment of salvation, but this does not make us righteous in conduct. In fact, in Romans 5.17, Paul calls it the gift of, of righteousness the gift of righteousness that is the very righteousness of god that is given to us as a gift and so this is what paul meant when he stated in 2 corinthians 5:21 to read that again that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of god in him and paul understood the doctrine of substitution that Christ died in the place of sinners, and that sinners are declared righteous because of the work of Christ credited to their account. This explains Paul's desire in Philippians (coughs) 3.9. We're backing up, by the way. Let me back up here a little bit. Because he talks about his life uh, as a Pharisee. He says, look, I'm going to do a little boasting here. Um, uh, uh, Here he says... Uh, verse 4, he says, Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Notice he says, Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. Now they were the most knowledgeable, the most educated, and the most religious of uh, the Israelites at this time. Unbelievers, but still very, very knowledgeable and religious. Verse 6, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. In other words, he kept the law. Um, now that does not save. please don't understand, please don't think of it that way. But notice what he says here in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me that is under this system, this uh, system of works, He said, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, I throw all that away. That means nothing to me. Absolutely nothing. In fact, he even goes so far, he really uses some strong language. One might even say profanity. Uh, In verse 8, he says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. In other words, his whole life of Pharisaism under the law and that whole system, he says, look, I throw it all away and count it, but rubbish. Now that word rubbish, the translators have, uh, have saved us here. They've, they've been very nice to us. They have. They've been very nice to us. But the word rubbish here translates the Greek noun skubalon, skubalon, and it means fecal matter. Is what it means. Now that's we might trans. You could translate it more crudely if you want to, but this is Bible class, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, but he he says, "Look," he said, "That's what I counted. It's all scuba on. Okay that I may gain Christ. And notice what he says in verse 9, because this is where he comes to. He says that I may be found in him, not in my own righteousness, not in my own good works, not in some system of Pharisaism, that I may be found in him, notice, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, which saves no one, by the way. Read, read uh, Galatians chapter 2 and 3. It makes it very clear. He says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that... That is that righteousness which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's the gift of righteousness that Paul talked about earlier. It's the imputed righteousness and that's what we want. That's, that's the righteousness we want. It's God's righteousness, and that's what we want. So this is, this is part of the blessing uh, that we get from the suffering servant. Now, Edward Young, who wrote a, a tremendous three-volume commentary on the book of Isaiah, and it's a good book, it's a good commentary Said It's a little dated, back from the 60s or so, but he was quite a Hebrew scholar, and, uh, and his uh, commentary is pretty good to have. I've got it. It's a good commentary. Uh, here I'm going to quote him. He says, when the servant bears the iniquities of the many and has been punished for the guilt of these iniquities, the act of bearing the iniquities in itself has not changed the character of those iniquities who are born. Now follow the language here. He goes on. He says, when the iniquities are born, when the guilt, uh, that is, i.e., when the guilt of those iniquities involved has been punished, the servant may declare Uh, that the many stand in right relationship with God. Their iniquities will no longer be able to rise up and accuse them. Let me pause for a moment here. What is he talking about? Their iniquities will no longer be able to rise up and accuse them. That's that's true because Christ has borne those sins. And and the law of double jeopardy says you can't be charged twice. You, You can't be charged for those sins because Christ has borne those sins. So his comment is is absolutely correct. Their iniquities will no longer be able to rise up and accuse them, for the guilt of those iniquities has been punished. Christ bore those sins, and he was punished for that. We cannot be punished for those sins, not in eternity. We will never know the lake of fire. That will never happen to God's people, not to those who come to faith in Christ. And that's why Romans 8, 1 is very clear when he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's absolutely clear. Let me read on here. He says, Thus they are justified. They are declared to be righteous. That's important language. He understands his theology, by the way. They are declared to be righteous, for they have received, what? The righteousness of the servant. And they are received and accepted by God himself. Of them, God says that they no longer have iniquities, but they do have the righteousness of the servant. And this can only be a forensic justification, end quote. And forensic justification means that we are justified before God as though it were a court of law. And when I did my doctoral dissertation on the subject of the righteousness of God and I went through every passage in the Old Testament and New Testament and looked up every reference uh, to the word righteousness as it's found in the Hebrew and the Greek, uh, I wound up spending a whole chapter in my dissertation on the subject of forensic justification. And the whole idea of imputed righteousness, it is such a theologically rich Bible teaching. And yet you don't hear this sort of stuff taught today in churches. It's all mamby-pamby. You know, it's sermonettes for Christianettes. But sound theology is often not taught. It was a hundred years ago, uh, but the churches have really become watered down. I think it's a sign of the time, by the way. Uh, Let me go on here for the sake of time. I'm going to go a few minutes over, but bear with me. If we had stood at the trials of Jesus, seen his beating, seen his crucifixion, and sat at the foot of the cross, surely we would have wept at the injustice and brutal cruelty of it all. However, the scripture reveals that it was the will of God that Christ go to the cross and die for sinners, and that his death uh, would be an atoning sacrifice that satisfied every righteous demand of the Father, satisfied propitiation. Oh, what a wonderfully rich word. I love that word. I spend the whole night talking about that. And that his death would be an atoning sacrifice, again, that that satisfied every righteous demand of the Father. In the willing death of Christ, in the willing death of Christ, we have the Father's righteousness displayed toward our sin as well as his love toward us, the sinner whom he seeks to save. And at the cross, we see the coalescence of two major attributes, righteousness, that he is willing to judge sin because he's a righteous and holy God, and love because he loves us, the sinner, and he's willing to let Christ die in our place, That's love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He bore our sin upon the cross. It's a picture of love, and we must see it as that. Now, there is purpose to the suffering of Christ. He suffered, he suffered that we might have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And his substitutionary death propitiated the Father's righteous demand for justice concerning our sin. And now we can come to God with the empty hands of faith because we bring nothing. We come with the empty hands of faith and we receive the free gift of eternal life. And we are clothed in perfect righteousness. And this was accomplished while we were helpless, ungodly sinners and enemies of God. And God graciously acted toward us to reconcile us to himself. And this was accomplished through the suffering of Christ. Now that finished this particular section. I was actually going to do suffering and humility tonight, but that's all right. We spent a little bit of extra time here. There's richness here, and trust me, I still didn't unpack it. Uh, For every verse I brought up, I had three or four that I was dismissing uh, because I had to try to keep it focused here. So anyway... So that is going to close out this particular lesson on the subject of the suffering servant. On the subject of the suffering servant. All right, well, I will leave it with that then. Let us go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Oh, did you have a question, Lavana? No, no, I was just going to add my thanks. But just great lesson tonight. Thank oh. you so much for the preparation and the Literally, it was awesome. Oh, good. I'm, awesome. I'm glad. Always love your company. Always. All right, well, let's pray, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time of study in your word and fellowship together, uh, that we can have this time that is honoring to you and edifying to us. We thank you for your word, Father, which is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit of the joints and the marrow, and that it is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And we are thankful, Father, that we can come to your word and come open and honest with questions and difficulties, that we can take this time to look into your word and to discuss these issues. And Father, we just pray this evening as we take this time to close out that this will be a time in which we will be positively impacted by the things that we've studied, that we might grow thereby. Father, we thank you very much. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.